we're sort of, we're almost in love, I think, in modern culture with, with a narrative that says, oh, we meant to do that. <laughs> oh, that was, you know, that was, that was the plan the whole time. And I think sort of just being honest and humble about recognizing how these things are messy and we keep cherry picking the success stories um, when in fact the, you know, not, not everything comes out in a success story in this, in this progressive linear manner. So if we can make room for more of those stories, then I, then we can make more room for recognizing that there's a flow to these things that is not only about productivity, but it's also about breakdown. It's also about when things don't go as you expected. And that's actually all part of the process and not something to be necessarily afraid of. Welcome to the Voices of Silence podcast. I'm Foga MC, and I'm joined today by Alexandra Crampton. Alexandra is an associate professor at the Marquette University's Department of Social and Cultural Sciences. Our discussion today is centered around one of Alexandra's 2015 articles, Decolonizing Social Work Best Practices Through a Philosophy of Impermanence. In the article, Alexandra, you argue that decolonization requires more than surface-level change, and therefore in social work you say changing theories and intervention practices will not bring true transformation without attending to the underlying Western beliefs that perpetrate these problems. Would you mind telling us the story of how you got into dealing with decolonization and impermanence? You know, that's part of storytelling is to figure out like, well, how far back do we go? <laughs> um, but one place to go is that uh, one of my areas of interest and in research is alternative dispute resolution. And one of my frustrations with the field is that there hasn't been an ongoing interplay of basic applied field research with practice based um, standards and of, of application. So what I've seen in the field is, is that there was, for example, in family court mediation, which is one of my areas, there was a really robust debate if you go back into the literature in the 80s and 90s where they said, is this really going to work? Is it really going to work the way you think it will? What is the, what's the gap between the ideal and the reality and what do we do with that gap? Um, and I think sometimes part of the problem in our modern Western minds is we think that we have to get rid of that gap rather than recognize that it's always going to be there on some level. And I think there's a better understanding of that in, in anthropology. They talk about how um, there's no representation that you can make through language and through images that is going to completely capture a social situation. And we recognize that. So and that's why you want multiple voices. That's why you want multiple times that you look at a situation. So in my, so what I really I was really surprised when I started doing field research. So I did this training in mediation. I was really excited. I thought I'd found like the perfect solution to all kinds of things. And that was partly because I was a little naive about conflict and how it works as well. Um, and then I was disappointed in some of the outcomes and results. And it seemed like this was not an uncommon problem that I was observing in my own experience with practicing mediation within us. It was actually a student run organization at the university of Michigan. And yet the official version was this polished version, this, this clear, distinct version. This is exactly how mediation should work. And, and so I thought, well, if it doesn't work that way, then what do I do with that? You know, what do I do with that gap? And then when I started to do my dissertation research, there was even more of a gap because I then looked at the application of this process in Ghana and the ways in which um, there are even greater disconnects in some ways, and also the application with older adults. And that brought in gerontology and the ways in which gerontology has been very narrowly constructed as problem solving. So taking people who are considered old because of their chronological age and then trying to fix them on their behalf. 
which is another colonization. It's a colonization of age. Um, and so it's fascinating to see that, you know, white people colonize themselves and something important to look at. So at the same time, I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere and I didn't feel like I was really um, transcending uh, transcending these models enough. In anthropology, we always try to look at like, are we being ethnocentric? Is this a Eurocentric approach in some ways? And I started to think, you know, even by framing the problem as this gap between the ideal and the reality and what to do about it, I was um, reinforcing this idea that intervention is about rational problem solving. We've got a problem, we've got to solve it, and, and there's an intellectual analytical way to, that will adequately capture it. And I thought, maybe, maybe we need to dig even deeper. Maybe we have to think about, is that a Eurocentric or ethnocentric approach? Is there, is there something that we're missing? Is there some other way to conceptualize intervention that would not be that rational problem solving mode that divides the world into good and bad? This worked, this didn't work. Is that, is there something, even though we think that's the ideal, maybe sometimes the ideals can be deceptive or limiting. And then I just thought back to, uh, I don't know why I made this, how I made this connection exactly, but I thought back to when I was an undergraduate and I learned about this story about the repatriation of the Zuni war gods. And what I liked, one of the things I liked about that story in particular is that the, the, the war gods are these adolescent twin gods of war and also um, have the power to bring peace to the land. And it, it, if they're out of place, they, they, don't, they can do, they can wreak havoc. They can actually do things. And, you know, if we have this idea that, that interventions work or they don't work, and if, if they work, they always work the same and they always work in the same way, we miss the ways in which a good intervention in the wrong place or applied in the wrong way could go very wrong. Um, so that was one piece I really liked about it. And another is that, I thought it was just sort of uh, mind-boggling in comparison to the ways in which we're taught in social work, this sort of top-down that, like in the United States, the Council on Social Work Education wants to be able to help say, like, this is what you should learn that's imparted through social work education. You have that stamp of approval through your degree, and that makes you a social worker. Um, that is so different from this idea of, a, of an intervention that works effectively because it might break down over time, because it transforms along with the context that it's in. And so I like two of those, those th two things in particular, I thought, well, that is a great challenge um, to social work and to mediation. Um, and then the funny thing is, is that I thought this was such a great idea. You might like, this. I was afraid at first to share it. I was like, this is big. This is really big. And I, and I finally drafted an article and it was rejected. And I think I, I think maybe there's another one that I wrote. It was rejected. And in talking to, um, an editor, she was, uh, uncomfortable with, in the process of telling this story, the role of the expert is most similar, not to the Zuni people and certainly not to the Zuni war gods, but to the anthropologists of the 19th century in the United States who were hired by the Smithsonian Institution to go around the country that they had recently conquered and take from people with the idea that they, you know, and in their own minds and their own cosmology, there is a sort of natural evolution in which you know, Western civilization was superior. And so they, they weren't really committing genocide. They were just confronting reality, which is that they were superior people. And, and really for the sake of science and greater knowledge, they would salvage as much as they could by taking these artifacts and by documenting all this information. And of course now, you know, the narrative has changed and, you know, there's, there's, there's still a need for greater reckoning, but there's certainly some realization that that was not the best way to do things. And you can see that in also in this Zuni war god story, um, within the story about 
repatriation efforts that were made that were initiated by the Zuni people over a hundred years later um, in terms of the initial uh, expeditions by the Smithsonian or through the Smithsonian. Um, so as it, it wasn't until the 1970s uh, that there was a concerted effort in my understanding um, by the Zuni people to, to repatriate some of these Zuni war gods, not simply because like, this is ours, this is our property, but because there was a genuine distress about what was going on in the world and how things were imbalanced by the ways in which these war gods have been treated. So that brings me to maybe to a third thing, which is that I like about the story, which is that um, the, you know, the North American approach, the U.S. approach to knowledge preservation was a literal preservation. It was to use chemicals to make sure that these war gods remained permanent and remained the same. They embalmed them. <laughs> and, and that was the opposite of what they needed to do in order to do their work. And to what extent do we attempt to sort of embalm things by, and then make them permanent. And, and that gives us a certain comfort because then you can pass it on to a student and say, this is exactly what you do. Follow these 10 steps and you will have saved the world. But you know, if, if that's not how the natural world, if that's not how it actually works, then we, we need to just accept that and then move from there. So those are the different things that came up. And so in the end, to get this published, um, I got, you know, you get discouraged through rejection. So I decided, you know, what is what is the, like, there's only one thing I got to say. I don't get to say the whole story that I just gave you those points and things, but I can pick one thing. What, what is, what is a really core thing? And I realized part of it was about time. Part of it was about the difference between embalming something and trying to make it permanent, trying to make that answer permanent in part by your artificial control over it and allowing things to interact naturally over time and through that interplay, maybe even risk disappearing or becoming something you would never expected. Um, but, but because of this greater good that, that results. So I, I realized that maybe time was an important piece um, to this. And so that's what I ended up highlighting in the article. Interesting story with many twists and turns. It's interesting because at one point when you were talking and you said, oh, this, this just came to me and I, I, you can't exactly tell the process. And sometimes, I, somehow I thought in my head, well, just because you didn't go to it with a specific method and approached it in a specific method that you can now explain, it doesn't invalidate the fact that it's knowledge that you gained somehow. And so I start questioning, like, what's even then, because we say, well, scientific knowledge is knowledge that has gotten through a specific method. But what about knowledge that comes to you of course it's there but you can't remember the method because it's not as important how you got there but that you're there and you share this story and I, I find it interesting it's like the eureka moment like you dropped your own um, piece of soap in the bathroom <laughs> and, and, and then you write a paper about decolonizing social work best practices through a philosophy of impermanence you make an assumption that social work is colonized or that social work is a colonial practice. And you've talked about the colonization of time, the colonization of age. I want to ask you if, if you can quickly just lay out how is social work colonized or a colonial practice and why does it need to be decolonized? And, and I, you know, I have, I have different backgrounds and I don't tend to distinguish as much sometimes. I mean, I, so when I talk about gerontology, I can see that colonizing of age and then anthropology certainly has its direct relationship with colonization. Um, and I've been, I went to a conference way back in 2006, which was about the ways in which alternative dispute resolution is a professional model, whether or not um, 
this was a form of imperialism, whether the global spread of, of ADR was a form of imperialism. So it's on people's minds anyway, certainly in the United States. So then, so that I only hesitate in that. I, I feel like as an academic, I feel like, okay, maybe I should be more careful. I should go back and read the history books and the history of social work and see if where specifically people who had that license or that title of social work came into the colonization project in the United States, for example, because of certainly there there was a role with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, removing children from their homes, sending them to boarding schools. I don't know to, to what extent social workers were explicitly involved in that in that project. There are different critiques now about various assimilation projects um, in the United States as well. The ways in which social workers were facilitating this process, you know, there are various waves in, of influxes of uh, immigrants and efforts to assimilate more than to, you know, work with. When I think about my own training in social work, that colonization piece to me is partly about my own struggles as a student with the pressures to use that top-down search for permanence kind of approach with what felt like was needed in terms of having more voice from the people that you're actually working with. Like you've like it like one thing that's bothered me about social work is about um, it seems like there's a recognition from people on the ground doing direct practice that, of course, you need to listen with, to people. I mean, if you're going to actually help them, you're helping them, you're, you're enabling them, you're empowering them, you're working from their strengths, you're not sort of imposing your solutions on them. And so it seems like there's almost like cycles of interest in this and na different names for it. So there is an empowerment wave and there is a strengths-based wave. And one of my concerns is that it seems like if we know this, why do we keep losing it? Like right now there's diversity, equity, and inclusion. Is that going to transform social work or is that going to become something that gets folded into it over time? And then we have yet the next iteration of this. So that's where I see colonization is that there, I think there are larger forces through how we value and pay for social work. So within capitalism, there's a need to commodify things so that they can then be exchanged for value. And the Western modern top-down commodification process facilitates that. I mean, like you said, with your frustration, can you imagine somebody saying, you know, two people competing for a grant and one person says, I'm going to come in and for your money that you're going to give me, I'm going to do the following five things. This is how I'm going to know that it works. And this is what I promise to deliver. And someone else who says, well, I can't predict what's going to happen. I'm going to come into the context. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to be willing to revise things over time. I can't make promises because that might force a solution that's not really natural. And I'll get back to you. <laughs> you know, who do you think is going to get funded right now? So that's I, it, that's a really that's a really key tension. And, and at the same time, I think we have to appreciate where the need is coming from to have those clear answers and clear solutions. Uh, you can't just dismiss that. So I'm not trying to do that when talking about decolonizing, but I am trying to decentralize that pressure and not make it the only factor that's important. Thank you very much for sharing. Um, so far, your, your personal stories have played a very important role in the knowledge and, and the research that you have conducted and how you have chose, chosen to present those uh, uh, research results in the end. In that regard, one tends to think of science as a very personal experience, as uh, as Sean Wilson argues in Research a Ceremony, that research has to be first and foremost relational. So one therefore owes a responsibility to the relationships that one develops um, within and outside or around that research. 
uh, to the people you you research with, to the people you collaborate with. Um, therefore, one tends to think, of course, um, as of an accountability or research, accountability in terms of relations. But let's talk about relation and accountability to time. You talk about impermanence and being able to let things disintegrate. If we then think about relationships, uh, our relationship with time and accountability, shouldn't accountability with time mean sustainability and this sustainability mean preserving preserving things other than letting them disintegrate how do you explain um, impermanence as a positive for decolonization well that's a great question um and what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to bust out a little bit of this western modern proclivity to to divide things up um and divide and to make use this in a binary so there's good bad there's permanent impermanent so the solution to the problems of permanence is not to, you know, romanticize impermanence. It's, it's, that's, that's, in fact, you're working within the same cosmology. Um, and so then I could imagine over time, since neither, neither state is permanent, since neither state is really going to be the absolute or universal, it makes sense that there might even be a competition over time between the people that argue for impermanence and flexibility and being open. And those who say, no, we need structure. We need there's a there's a greater benefit than there is a liability to structure and to and to clear answers and it, we know that no plan is perfect so we're just going to pick a plan and keep using it um so it, yeah i think i think what i'm arguing for is less about the superiority of impermanence um than accepting it as part of the overall process because of course there might be consistent answers over time and you wouldn't want to waste resources like we know we can we can claim a greater universality about human development of infants. There's way less variation amongst infants and in how they are in the world and what they need than 20-year-olds. And probably more consistency looking at 20-year-olds than 6-year-olds simply because humans are uniquely vulnerable to and, and and adaptable to the environment. So I just want to make sure that you don't want to, as a counterbalance to overplaying the importance of permanence and uh, progress and the, the global or universal, you don't want to flip that and say, well, actually, the real place to focus is the local and the impermanence, and because all you're doing is inverting that power structure. So it's, it's really, that's what I like about the Zuni War Gods stories, for me at least, it allowed me to get out of that, to not try to look for the next new thing to displace whatever we've been talking about, but rather to, to have a big enough picture where you see that, that there's, there's no displacement when you have the biggest picture because you're talking about like the world as a whole and the community as a whole and the environment as a whole. And then you've got that sort of mystery and, and magic and challenge of coexistence. And we see it, I was thinking this morning too, we see it a little bit um, in what I know of, which is not a lot about the environmental movement. So in the early 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 times of the environmental movement, part of the inspiration for that was as Europeans were exploring and exploiting um, natural resources, they really saw the impact on in these fragile island systems. Um, and so they were trying. They they're early on. There were scholars who were saying we need to preserve these, and that led into these ideas about having gardens and botanical gardens, things that you would have you would enclose and you could protect and. Um, keep them from being attacked and all that kind of stuff and, or eroded. But but now we recognize that it's it working with the environment is more complicated than that. You can't just simply try to um, draw a boundary around something and say, well, you can't touch it. That's another form of, of preservation that isn't isn't going to work. 
um, because the system overall is more complicated than that. So I think we're we're starting to really, con- I, my understanding is that the environmental movement has kind of a second wave to it, which is more about this contingency piece. It's it's more about, it's less about trying to keep things the way they are and more about um, trying to play with and recognize the incredible impact we're having on the environment and that we need to make choices as we reckon with the, you know, both the intended and unintended consequences. Thank you very much for sharing. Um, we've been talking about the Zuni war gods and, and just in terms of intended consequences, I mean, I don't think uh, the Zuni war gods were built with the intention of being the symbol of impermanence. But you have you have understood that story and you looked at you looked at the story of the Zuni war gods, the story of the reparation, the story of their making. Um, if you would share this story, I'd like to understand how you were able to develop from them or from that story, uh, quite intentionally or not, um, the 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 understanding of a philosophy of impermanence and what that really means for 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 science and and decolonization of social work right now. Sure, and I should say, like, I am hardly an expert on Zuni culture, so especially as, you know, a um, direct descendant, and you know, I, I, in the story, I have to identify as a settler um, or an Anglo, and so I just want to be sensitive to that. So I don't pretend to know the culture well. Um, I certainly don't speak the language. So I, so when I talk about Zuni war gods, it's within that narrative um, that came through co- the colonization experience in which Zuni people came forward and were able to repatriate the Zuni war gods. So I was actually noticing that there's a little bit of information that's pretty much the same as in my article that's on Wikipedia. <laughs> so you can find out more about them on Wikipedia. My understanding is that these were taught, when I talk about the Zuni war gods and the repatriation, we're really talking about the representation of those gods, which is through, um, from an outside perspective, it's, you know, it's wood and feathers, it's, it's, it's natural elements. Um, so it's not literally that it's not quite as simple as, as, you know, these, these are one and the same, but, but that there's a representation in the ways in which the gods, their, their spiritual energy is able to engage is through these, through these, um, got these figures that are created every year, um, by two of the clans within the Zuni people. Um, and they are meant to be installed, so to speak, in, in, in shrines that are outside and in the natural environment. Um, and over time they do their work. It's not something that you would observe. Maybe, I mean, I'd be interesting to be interesting to see if the Zunis are interested at all in trying to scientifically observe, um, the way that we're taught science works in terms of observation, because science is, you know, Western science is one way of observing the world. Um, but over time they're, they're supposed to do their job, um, when they're, where they're supposed to be and over time and from an outsider perspective, you, it seems like they're deteriorating. So it seems like they're falling apart. It seems like they're becoming part of the natural world, but also disappearing. Um, that's my understanding. So that is where I thought that makes more sense because I mean, as a metaphor for thinking about social work, because as in a successful intervention, it doesn't matter. Like, so for example, in therapy, my understanding is that research shows that it doesn't matter so much what model the therapist uses. What matters more is the therapeutic alliance. It's the relationship between the therapist and client. And that is going to be partly a factor of things that the therapist has control over, but it's also going to be a factor of things the therapist doesn't have control over. So how easily the client trusts the therapist is partly about what's going on with the client. 
um, what the client actually needs from the therapist and whether or not they can kind of, you know, engage and, and really understand that that's going to depend on the interplay between the two of them in that session. So <clears throat> one, the same therapist might work with five different clients differently because <clears throat> there are different things that come out of that exchange over time. And <clears throat> when they're asked what they did, they might find it easier to give an answer based on a particular model. But actually, a number of therapists will say, well, I'm eclectic. <laughs> and really, in a way, and, and in a way, it might even be hard to kind of put your finger on, just like with that Eureka moment, it might be hard to put your finger on exactly what it was that was done, because you could have something work really well with a client, and then you try to replicate it, because you're like, okay, this is what worked. I get it now. I'm not going to make mistakes. I don't want to waste my client's time, so I'm going to do it like this. But you've got a new client. It's I, I, It reminds me of... Um, when I first started teaching, I was struggling quite a bit and I felt like I finally had this class where some, you know, certain things really worked. And one of my mentors said, that's great, but just keep in mind, next time you teach this class, you're going to have a totally different group of students. So don't expect it. So, I mean, the good news is that if something doesn't work, it doesn't mean it never works. And then the challenge is that just because it did work, maybe worked beautifully, doesn't mean that you could exactly replicate it. Because over time, you develop a relationship with the students, the class becomes, the, my classes are never exactly the same every semester. And at first, I was very perplexed by that, because I had people who advised me and said, the first time you teach a class, you start to figure out what you're really teaching. And the second time, you really figure out how to teach it. And the third time, you box it up. And you figure out, you're like, this is what I do, which is great for like marketing purposes. You can explain yourself, you can put it in a textbook. You can give people checklists, you can put your name attached to it, and then everybody follows your method of teaching. But in reality, you're trying to bring out something in the students that's not yours. It's theirs. It's their education. And for you to try to control it is a, is a dynamic of colonization to try to say, no, that's my student. I did that. <laughs> you know, if you want to if you want to help students to be able to then help others, you you need to help cultivate and help them to figure out how to keep cultivating on their own their ability to engage and assess and help. Thank you very much for sharing that. Actually, this uh, and, the, and the last bit of your answer has made a very good connection to um, the, the our next question or our next point of discussion, which is about best practices. Um, this body of knowledge that we as human beings and scientists and social workers have developed over a period of time that tends to make life easy. And so somewhat arrogantly, I think, oh, I can solve your problems because then we have best practices and you can apply what has been working over 100 years or in one part of the world to another part of the world and you don't have to worry about it. Well, whether making life easy is the objective of science or of teaching, that's another discussion. But one might think you almost have a problem with convenience because you talk about the nature of, of best practices, and I tend to think, well, the nature of best practices is that they're very convenient. But you get into a different discussion and you talk about the nature of best practices by asking the question if they are nouns or they are verbs. And I would like to understand what difference it makes if best practices were nouns or they are verbs um, and how or what impact it has on the way we see science and the way we practice social work um, today. Yeah, I think, I mean, part of it goes back to that commodification piece. So... If you think that the value of something is in part based on its um, replication and on its sameness over time versus the value of it is maybe a start. You can think of it as like sourdough starter, <laughs> like the sourdough starter gets the bread 
is necessary for making the bread, but it isn't the next loaf of bread. It's a piece of it. So, so I, I think that's what I meant in part about the nouns versus the verbs. Cause to me, the nouns is about trying to, you know, plant a flag in something. It's, it's trying to say, this is what this looks like. It's, it's almost a physical thing. These constructs that we use in social work, like um, best practices is, is, a, is an actual commodity. It's a thing. It, it can be, it can even be a, a form of private property that could be patented or copyrighted. Like, you know, from now on you're using uh, the Alexander method and we're all going to have to make sure everybody's trained in the Alexander method in the exact same way type of thing. So that's, that's what I mean by the noun approach and the verb approach just gives you that contextual piece. It gives you time also because we recognize that actions have a temporal element to it. And there's also the need, I hope, for a sense of openness about that, knowing that not everything is going to necessarily happen the same way. Um, so it's that's that's what I mean by. And I, I again, I think if you talk to people who work from the ground up, who are more entrepreneurial or who are, you know, practice oriented, for some of them, this is just common sense. This is just how it actually works, and it's not a big deal if the if it doesn't match the constructs because for them they're they're interested in in something that's more immediate and then if it if it happens to fit a construct that's great so what you're basically saying is that best outcomes do not necessarily come from best practices well it's it's a constant i so i teach at a jesuit institution so <clears throat> one of the words you hear a lot is discernment it's a, it's a it's a constant discernment task and I think the problem is that we need to be open to having this be an ongoing discernment process. Cause I don't think, I don't think it makes, I don't think that again, we end up with this sort of Western mindset where it's like, well, if there, there isn't a set of best practices that everybody is taught and everybody learns, then there's no best practices. It's all just open. It's chaos. You know? And, and I, I do think there's a value to learning from the wisdom of, of people who've gone before you. There's a value in, especially for something like that example of, you know, infant development, there's, there's certain things where you can get a lot closer to seeing that it's, there's enough consistency that the, that the losses um, that come from presuming consistency are not as great as the gains. Whereas maybe in a context of working with people that are 60 and over, you've, you've, you've got such a wide range of people um, and experiences and then their generational differences and whatnot, then maybe that, that emphasis on structure versus openness might start to shift. So it might depend. That's 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 it might depend um, on what you're doing. And I, at the same time, I don't. We have to, there is an efficiency piece to this, um, and you don't want to necessarily have to treat everything as a brand new experience. It's it's about a tension. It's about a productive tension between what has come before and what you're dealing with right now, um, between what's been established in the literature and already been vetted, um, and what is immediate. And, in, and then we have to deal with the reality of the um, social production and political economy of expertise, which is that there's a bit of a temptation sometimes to keep things the same because people have invested themselves in their own identity in that particular set of practices or ideas. So we have to have some kind of willingness to be able to vet those from time to time and not, not let them get too calcified or... Um, Unnes- like unnaturally reinforced, I guess, if I can put it that way. It's scary. It's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm a tenured professor. It's kind of like the difference between having the tenure system that says once you get tenure, you have your job. You don't have to worry about it. There are benefits, but there are also liabilities to that. And saying the opposite, 
you know, extreme could be, well, we're just going to put you on annual contracts or maybe even a course by course basis. You know, you can imagine that there, there's strengths and benefits to either pull, but I think you can mitigate the, the, the difficulties um, at either extreme by trying to be somewhere in the middle. So you've talked about the importance of learning from people that came before us and from best practices, of course, and from research that has been legitimated um, in, in several ways. You talked about publication, which is one of the ways in which research is legitimated and one of the ways in which I found your articles as one of the ways in which po- uh, permanence is manifested. Um, how do we kind of strike a balance between manifesting permanence, teaching people, and what other ways then exist for us to kind of share, preserve, um, and, and, and teach others and learn from each other without necessarily manifesting permanence and that's another great question yeah the logistics of this i I don't think that i have a clear plan that i can roll out for you but um because part of it does have to do with bringing these different elements together the donors the the accreditation board the experts and the people themselves just bringing them bring bringing those different spheres of expertise and dialogue with each other from time to time but I also find that publishing has been changing a a lot. So there might be something between this um, performance of perfection and permanence. I'm old enough that I remember when knowledge for me as a kid was whatever was published and bound in the encyclopedia that we had at home. And, and it was, it looked like it was an enormous set of volumes when I was like 10, but in fact, what is in a set of volumes in, in an encyclopedia um, is so much less than what you find on the internet now. I mean, we're just we're we're grappling with having access to more information than any human can really absorb, and even our tools that we're creating through computers and algorithms to try to capture that, we're we're hopefully aware of the limitations on doing that. There are distortions that happen even with these really powerful computers trying to do the best that they can. So in publishing. There's already kind of the elements of decolonization anyway, because you don't have to go to an expert to get answers. You can go to the internet. And then we have to think about how do we make sure that people are literate and, and able to discern in terms of all this information that's being thrown at them. So we're shifting, I think we're already just in an environment due to the internet that is shifting us from worrying about how to make sure the experts really are expert to how do we digest all the different, the range of expertise that were offered um, through the internet and through all the different disciplines you might learn from um, and how to digest that. And publishing itself has elements, there are ways to publish that are less permanent in the sense of, you know, rather than a published volume and a hard copy, there are blogs and there, you know, there are blogs that people, and they might change it over time or it might disappear for a while from the internet. And so there's, there's actually already some things to, there are already some examples of things in between um, our old fashioned ideas about expertise and the explosion um, of different forms of expertise and, and, and not um, that are happening through the internet. But I think it's a really great question about how do you, how do you then know what to trust? And how do you, what is, what is the, pro, I mean, it doesn't mean that you have no process of legitimation and, and you have no panels of experts or something like that. It just means that you're less, um, um, less likely to depend on a particular panel indefinitely. Um, I think COVID has been a fascinating way for the public to suddenly be confronted with how much science doesn't know. Like you're presented 
with, I mean, I think a couple generations ago, like looking at, I was listening to a, um, stories about the development of the polio vaccine in the United States. And this was during a time that w- there was a different relationship between the government and people <laughs> and, a, and a smaller population. Um, there were parents who brought forth their children and said, you can use my kid in a randomized controlled trial. And we'll, we'll, we know there's a risk and we know that there's a greater good that we're sacrificing potentially our kids' health for. And we want this, we think this polio vaccine is really important. Um, we can't even get people to be willing to take a vaccine that's been tested. So times have changed. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm getting off track, but anyway, so I just think that um, part of the reason could be today, I mean, it's just a more complicated challenge um, in terms of trying to be able to promote the best interventions. So I think that the times that we're in today sort of force us to decolonize some of our thinking. I mean, it's, it's actually in our part of our adaptation as humans is to recognize like what the environment looks like and, and the illusions of control were never completely fulfilled anyway, but the effort to control is even harder, I think, than it was a couple generations ago. Thank you for listening to yet another edition of the Voices of Silence podcast. I am Foga MC and you've been listening to the first part of my discussion about decolonizing social work best practices through a philosophy of impermanence with Alexandra Crampton. To learn more about the podcast and our upcoming episodes, please follow us on Instagram at the Voices of Silence Spot. Until our next episode, Ubuntu.